Welcome to the Sugar Science Podcast, where our mission is to highlight and connect researchers in the type 1 diabetes space. I'm Monica Wesley for the Sugar Science, your host for today's podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Ed Phelps, coming to us from Gainesville, Florida, where he is the Assistant Professor of Biomedical Engineering at the Prude Family Department of Biomedical Engineering. He also um, was a recipient of the NPOD Young Investigator Award in 2018, and he did a postdoc at EPFL in Switzerland, which was supported by the JDRF Advanced uh, Postdoctoral Position Award. So pretty um, significant uh, background. Welcome, Ed. Thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. Um, I wanted to just quickly ask you, can you talk to us about how you got scientifically interested in type 1 diabetes research? Yeah. Um, so unlike many other diabetes researchers, I don't have a personal connection to T1D. Um, I became interested in this research space through another project. So I did my PhD uh, at Georgia Tech in Atlanta in uh, bioengineering. And, and there I was really working at a material science project where I was, I was building engineered hydrogens, um, synthetic microenvironments to house cells and to transplant cells. And uh, we developed this material that um, very strongly induced vascularization or growth of new blood vessels. And we became interested in an application for islet transplant. And so I developed um, uh, islet transplantation protocols and uh, did preclinical experiments um, that were actually very successful. And that sort of opened the door for me that, uh, you know, islets are fascinating biological structures mm -hmm. that are really, really cool to study, have really amazing physiology, and it's very important from a public health perspective in terms of all of the cases of T1D and T2D out there. And so that's when I decided that I wanted to, to go deeper and that's where I took it for my postdoc um, to study island biology. Yeah, it's, uh, we've seen many um, scientists kind of come uh, to type one diabetes research from other disciplines. And I think it's, um, I think that really is a benefit. It's such a benefit to come with a different training and new perspectives to the field. What do you think about the work that's being done right now in your field? Um, that's sort of in your realm of uh, T1D research? Well, I think we're seeing uh, explosive growth across a whole range of, of biotech um, you know, fields from CRISPR to uh, stem cells to single cells. So all of these new techniques are coming online that are just really enabling new modalities and are very, very powerful. So, Applying those things in our field, in the T1D field, is, of course, really exciting to see that happening. And the pace is picking up and the bar is getting higher in terms of what success means. Um, so one of the things that I'm most excited about are the, is the development for um, renewable sources of human beta cells now from mm -hmm. uh, stem cell sources. And uh, in the past 10 years, this has really taken off. And I think it's sort of always been a dream of the field to have a renewable source of beta cells that are functional and uh, can reverse diabetes when transplanted. And I think, honestly, it's really coming along very, very well. That's the thing I'm most excited about. Yeah, I'd agree. I think that um, just like you said, you know, the bar is raising and the pace is quickening and that's equal success. I love that, how you said that. It's truly, um, it's really the tone of what's happening in the field. 
Um, I just wanted to talk about your fantastic paper that just uh, recently came out, Mechanism and Effects of Pulsatile GABA Secretion from Cytosolic Pools in the Human Beta Cell. Um, yeah, pretty great paper. Um, I, I wondered, how can you, um, how might you further define, uh, well, first of all, why don't you just give us a little introduction for those who haven't read it about it, and then we'll have, you know, sort of do a little Q&A about it. Sure. So I'll, I'll just ad-lib ad -lib this a little bit, but um, I think I can speak knowledgeably about the paper. I think so. Uh, right. So the beta cell shares a lot of similarities with, with neurons. In fact, um, there's a lot of transcriptional overlap in terms of the markers that they express and the pathways for secretion of hormones, uh, both you know, all the different types of endocrine cells in the eyelids are secreting insulin or glucagon, somatostatin. The machinery for packaging and secreting those hormones kind of parallels the way that neurons secrete neurotransmitters. Mm -hmm. uh, everyone knows this diagram of a synaptic cleft where you have um, you know, one axon uh, connecting to the other neuron here, and then you have the neurotransmitters that are released when you have a calcium wave, and then they go across the cleft and hit a receptor and then it propagates. And so you know, some other types of cells in the body express some of that molecular machinery to do different things. And um, so it's kind of curious that along those lines, the cells in the islet also express neurotransmitters. And um, there's been a lot of investigation into why that happens, what, what's the usefulness of that, and, and what are the mechanisms uh, by which they're acting. And so there's various stories out there from other other researchers looking at different neurotransmitters, and there's been a long line of investigation on, on one that became of particular interest to us, which is called GABA. Mm -hmm. GABA is known in the central nervous system for being the primary inhibitory neurotransmitter in the brain. And the other place where you find a lot of GABA in the body uh, is in the islet, and uh, the concentrations in the islet are as high as in the brain. Um, however, the literature on GABA in the islet has really been a mixed bag of results that are not always consistent with one, one another mm -hmm. in terms of how GABA gets out of the beta cell and uh, what's, it, what's it doing in terms of its function. Um, the other interesting thing about GABA is its biosynthesizing enzyme. Um, all neurotransmitters are generally created through an enzymatic pathway. Uh, is, so the enzyme that makes GABA is, is actually GAP, which we know as a T1D autoantigen. Right, so, it's one of the first ones. That's right. So the, the, the enzyme that makes GABA is also one of the targets of autoimmunity in type 1. Um, so there's an interesting parallel there with the idiopathology of type 1 diabetes. So the paper, back to, back to the story, and I'll try to keep it shorter. That's no, uh, great. It's great. Is that there's uh, sort of been a mystery in the field as to how GAP actually gets out of the beta cell. It's been hypothesized for 30 years, and there's there's some data to demonstrate this is the case that it's released from um, from vesicles. Like if you remember, we're talking about this neurotransmitter release diagram. So something that's they're called synaptic-like microvesicles, which mm -hmm. would be akin to how a neuron releases its neurotransmitters. SLMVs. Yes, exactly. And you will find uh, review papers, even in the top tier journals, uh, with diagrams uh, illustrating these in the beta cell. And uh, they're, they're talked about whenever anyone gives a talk at a conference about this topic. And uh, the, 
thing that kind of prompted this study was we we noticed, and others have noticed it too, that there's like a background release of GABA that's sort of independent of those vesicles. Mm-hmm. And we're trying to figure out where is this coming from and how large is it? And then when we went and looked inside of the beta cell, where the GABA is, where do we find it? We found that virtually none of it is in vesicles. It's just completely diffuse in the cytoplasm of the yeah. cell. So it's free, free GABA. And then that prompted us to realize that that the description of this system wasn't the whole story, that there's going to be, there's more to it. And then the question was prompted, well, if it's not vesicular, how does the GABA get released from, from the islet? And that was really the main contribution from my lab um, was, was solving that mystery, explaining how that happens. And then uh, we also looked at what does the GABA do once it's released? Yeah, and so you you found out that this sort of secretion was happening through a channel, That's right. uh, a pulsatile channel. Uh, I mean, a pulsatile release through through a channel. Um, yeah. So let's. Can you talk a little bit more about the channel and yes, where it's found absolutely. other places in the body? Yeah. Well, first of all, I would say that this um, this part of the story wasn't directly coming from me. It didn't originate from me, although we worked on it. Um, we collaborated with two other teams, the uh, Alejandro Casado's lab at University of Miami mm-hmm. and Stanen Bekeskov's lab at EPFL in Switzerland. Mm-hmm. And they're co-senior authors with me. So I can't individually claim credit for all aspects of the story. That's okay. To, we had yeah, Alejandro on the podcast uh, last week. <laughs> so okay. it'll, be a, it'll be a concerted story. Great. <laughs> uh, glad that we can connect the dots that way then. Um, yeah. So the pulsatile aspects, uh, we can start with that. Um, okay, cool. Alejandro was working on a similar problem as us with GABA, where he realized that there was this non-vesicular type of GABA release that's independent of stimuli like glucose or potassium chloride, which would normally initiate vesicular fusion and release in a beta cell. And it was completely uncontrolled by these stimuli. And uh, he was measuring it by using what he calls sniffer cells or biosensor cells. Mm-hmm. So we would take a secondary cell that it expresses a receptor for GABA and hold it in close proximity to the islet in a flow field. So the fluid is flowing over the islet and downstream you have the sniffer cell and you watch the sniffer cell and it lights up whenever it senses GABA. So um, he was doing these experiments where he would see the sniffer cells come on and off in oscillatory patterns. Mm-hmm. And uh, at first, we thought this might be an artifact of the cells, that they're intrinsically oscillatory or something, but we did all the controls, um, and that wasn't the case. If you just give them a constant GABA stimulus, they would just stay on all the time. Or if there's no islet, they would just respond up and down perfectly with when GABA is there or not. So it must be coming from the islets itself. And um, so this was actually a really novel finding, and of course, it, yeah. it's kind of tricky to confirm that, but we replicated that result in my lab uh, at University of Florida with different cells and different setup and everything like that. So I tend to believe it. Um, the other side of the story then is what, uh, what is causing that oscillation? Yeah. And how is it getting out of the cell? And what's the meaning of all of this? So a couple of thoughts there. One is we actually identified a, a, ch- a channel in the plasma membrane that would connect the cytoplasm to the outside of the cell that opens um, under certain kinds of stimuli. These are called volume regulatory anion channels or VRECs. Mm-hmm. This is a really exciting channel that in, in I guess, structural biology as well as uh, people that study uh, ion channels in cells have had a 
a heyday with in the last five years publishing patch, patch clampers. yeah in the patch clamp world patch clampers exactly um people that also study cells optically have been studying have been studying mm -hmm. these channels people that do um x-ray crystallography and other other types of um like cryo em structural biology have been really interested in these channels so they're fairly ubiquitous and what they do is they help the any cell regulate its volume in in proportion to the osmolarity so if you can if you and if anyone is out there and listening as a scientist you'd probably or even if you're not you might remember we hope we, we hope most of them are yeah <laughs> but you might remember a chemistry lab experience experiment from high school or undergraduate where you um took a a, a an os, uh, red blood dialysis cell. membrane right yeah. like the snake skin dialysis membrane and filled it up with sucrose uh high sugar yeah. high content of sugar water and then you put it in pure water in a beaker and you watch the water rush in and blow it up like a balloon it gets larger right so this is uh, osmotic pressure driving that and uh the reason is because the water wants to diffuse into the high salt or high high sugar content and and um Cells will do the same thing if you put them in a low salt environment, what we call hypotonic saline. They'll expand and blow up like a balloon. But the cell wants to maintain its volume. So actually what they'll do is they will expel osmolites outside uh, via these channels. The channels will open and they will dump their, some of their content, small soluble molecules out. Uh, things like taurine or GABA are permeable to these channels. Mm -hmm. So we hypothesize that maybe this channel, because it's known to be permeable to GABA, is responsible for the release. And uh, we did some knockout studies uh, in mice and cell lines, and we got rid of this channel, and then we completely abrogated the other release. It, it, it was basically down to zero when we blocked these channels. So the, there's a lingering question is, how does it open and close periodically? What drives that behavior um, to create the pulses? Yes. Um, that we don't know yet, but we actually have a new, a new uh, grant proposal out there. Hopefully it's going to be funded. It was scored very well. So I think it will be within the NIH pay line in the next cycle to actually figure that aspect out. And study. So, so it's really, you think it's really driven by the channel opening and closing or some kind of ionic arrangement within the channel or something rather than um, a pulsatile, like, you know, um, up, up regulation, uh, up, up regulation of production of the GABA inside. Like oh, that's that a fantastic be? question. So we don't know. It could be either, and in fact, we propose to study both. So, um, a colleague of ours at I think the University of Wisconsin, Matthew Marins, has proposed a model of oscillatory metabolism in the beta cell. And of course, we know that the beta cell has calcium oscillations. This has been mm -hmm. studied for a long time by by many brilliant individuals. Um, so there could be metabolic oscillations or, or electrical oscillations within the islet uh, that could drive the behavior as well. So uh, certainly GABA is tied to the TCA cycle through a pathway called GABA shunt, where the mm -hmm. cell can metabolize GABA for fuel. And uh, it's possible that beta cells make a lot of GABA because it allows them to accelerate their ATP production in response to glucose. Mm -hmm. So beta cell has a need to generate a lot of ATP really quickly in order to activate their potassium, uh, ATP sensitive potassium channels, depolarize their membrane and secrete insulin as fast in fast speedy response. They probably care more about this velocity of ATP production than they do 
about uh, the efficiency in terms of how many molecules, moles of ATP they would get per mole of glucose. The speed might be more important. And they can actually use the GABA uh, to accelerate the pathway. Hmm. So we know that that ATP production is probably oscillatory. And that might mean that they are using GABA in an oscillatory manner as well, tied to that, which could then be tethered to the GABA release being oscillatory just because the GABA levels are going up and down. Right, they're going up and down. Yeah, but so we don't know this. This is no, just- No, you don't know. Yeah, we have yeah. to find out. You guys are, this is what you're gonna be doing next. What yeah. about the whole idea of, you know, originally in historical um, data and the papers, historical papers showed that, or were saying that, oh, um, GABA is just primarily found in these vesicles, but you know, talking to Alejandro, he's like, "Oh, that was um, an artifact, artifactual, and and that's you know, we were able to uncover really what's happening here." But there are still some vesicles that have GABA, so it's right. almost like a backup or something is going on there. Sure. Well, I um, I I am very diplomatic here, and I I would hesitate to say that other the the previous results were an artifact, but I, would, I might say that we didn't have the whole picture because we were looking for a certain thing. And mm. sometimes when you're looking for something that you expect, you find it. Um, and certainly there are some beta cells that do have vesicles. Now, what the difference is, is you have to have a protein called the vesicular GABA transporter, or some people call it a vesicular inhibitory amino acid transporter mm -hmm. expressed. And uh, so like the GABAergic neurons will have this on their synaptic vesicle surfaces. And that allows them to transport and pack the GABA inside of the vesicles. Just some of them have it. Yeah, so we found that this, this may be stochastic, perhaps, I'm not sure, but a small fraction of beta cells do have some vesicular gabatory transporter, vesicular GABA transporter expression. And uh, that's gonna be what's necessary to package it into vesicles. Uh, and we see a perfect localization of the GABA in vesicles with expression of that marker. Um, so that's you know how it happens in terms of whether there's a teleological argument that this this serves a purpose. Uh, we're not sure about. Yeah, I mean it's kind of weird. And then it's it's only some like what percentage of the beta cells present in any given islet mm -hmm. have this have GABA oh. vesicles? I mean just sort of off. Right, the we measured it at very few, like less than one percent. Huh. Um, so. You know, that makes one wonder whether it's how relevant it really would be to the overall islet physiology, whether it's just something funny going on with those, the transcriptional profile of those particular beta cells. Maybe it has something to do with the cell cycle. Um, you know, there's been a hype, uh, it was hypothesized by Guy Rutter, who wrote the News and Views article on our paper, mm -hmm. that they could be related to beta cell subtypes, um, for example, leader and follower beta cells. But we haven't tested that specifically. That's another thing we do propose to look at, actually, is whether, not specifically vesicles per se, although we will look at it, but whether the, uh, we see that the amount of GABA is heterogeneous. Mm. Not all cells have it exactly, somehow higher, somewhere lower. So we were wondering if um, it's related to their glucose sensitivity, which would cause them to trigger faster with glucose. Yeah, and what about the alphas, their neighbor, right? And those, yes. they're right next door and they're, I don't want to say nurse cells, but it's almost like they're connected. Like they're, they have like, a, um, they have their, they have gap junctions, right? But like, what are those things doing? 
Well, so in terms of the other cell types in the island, alpha cells, delta cells. Delta, epsilon. So one of the very interesting things we found here, and if you look at anyone else's RNA-seq data, it will back this up, the alpha cells express GAP. Mm. Now, that's mysterious for a couple of reasons to me. Uh, one being they have GAD, but not very much GABA or almost zero GABA. So they have GAD, but it's not active in the alpha cell. Mm. The other yeah. thing uh, uh, being that they don't get attacked by the immune system in T1D. Yeah. So why is that? And uh, people may say, oh, it's an artifact of the staining or something, but it's not true. You can see the, the RNA transcripts are up there. You can find it in proteomics and everything. And certainly the alpha cells have GAD. Uh, so we don't understand yeah, why. I mean, it is so weird because the first, one of the first uh, biomarkers, the first um, autoantigens is GAD65, right? It's cytoplasmic. Yes. That's right. How is the immune system seeing it? It's connected to the intercellular vesicles with this palmatoidal tail. It really should never see the outside of the cell unless the whole thing, it, the beta cells or uh, yeah, beta cells are, are blowing up apoptosis Right. Um, unless, you know, uh, but, and what is the NPOD data showing? You're seeing a bunch of beta cells blown up, blown to smithereens with GAD all over the place. I mean, what does the battlefield look like? Well, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, we actually have studied this during my postdoc, uh, this specific question. So um, I think there's, how do I put this? Um, GAD is a bit of an enigma because most of the other known autoantigens are associated with the insulin secretory brain, either pre-proinsulin yeah. um, or zinc transporter 8, ZNT8, yeah. uh, IA2. These other ones that are auto common autoantigens are associated with insulin secretion. And, you know, you have hypotheses about crinophagy and, re and processing and presentation of these antigens um, where you may have uh, either beta cells eating their own vesicles and presenting them or macrophages within the islet taking up these autoantigens. But that makes sense because insulin is secreted. But GAD isn't associated with the insulin granule and it's not secreted. So your question is a good one. And what we found is that is one possible mechanism for this is via exosomes. Yeah. So that's a new we, kid on the block, exosomes. Yeah. Um, so uh, this was during my postdoc. So we have a kind of a two-sided story, which is a two-part story, both published in Diabetes uh, around 2017, 2016, 2017, where we show that uh, in beta cells that are experiencing a state of ER stress, uh, which is one mechanism by which it's been proposed that you, you can initiate inflammation in, in the islet and trigger T1D. Now, it's a little, you know, some people are in favor of this pathway, some are not. But in any case, if we trigger ER stress in the beta cell. Like, if, still, like through a Coxsackie event, like a Coxsackie infection, that would trigger that kind of thing. Well, all, there are many things that can trigger it. So that viral infection is one thing. Um, a low number of beta cells and a high demand for insulin could trigger this. Um, any sort of inflammation that affects the protein folding uh, machinery, uh, really factory that is the beta cell. Mm -hmm. The beta cell just is really running out of, flat out hard as it can to make insulin. And uh, they're really pumping hard at protein synthesis. So if you derail that, then they have to kind of compensate and turn off a lot of things and rearrange. Or if they can't fix it, the cell will apoptose. So if we kind of put the cell off balance, um, what happens to the GAD is it's actually, as it's being like you mentioned, this palmetto, palmetto tails, 
where it's normal. This is a lipid modification that allows it to stick onto the cytosolic base of membranes in right. the cell. It gets stuck onto the Golgi apparatus of the beta cell when we stress the cells. And from there, it looks like it gets loaded into a pathway for, for secretion via a particle called an exosome, which is like a small membrane-bound vesicle that cells will release. Whether exosomes are just dumping out the trash or they serve, a, I think more and more evidence is showing that they're actually a biological mechanism for intracellular communication. Uh, people call them liquid biopsies. You can sample the blood and get little bits of cells from all over the body. And people have found exosomes from islets in circulation that you can analyze for an idea of what's going on in the islet. Who's doing that work? Do you know? Um, let's see. I think if I look this up really quickly, I don't want to leave anyone out. That's fine. Yeah, that's interesting that the GAD gets stuck on the Golgi. Yeah, but so then we also found GAD in the exosomes is where I'm heading with this. Right. And, and when there's a state of the stress, GAD is in the exosomes together with um, what we call ETNI signals or phagocytic signals um, that tell the innate immune system that there's something wrong going on. You need to take up this exosome and analyze it, take it off to the lymph node and see if there's anything here that shouldn't be. Uh, so this could be one way that GAD gets exposed to the immune system. And we also, by the way, found other autoantigens in those exosomes. So, uh, Together with the GAD. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Right. Yeah. But I don't think we, we don't have evidence yet that it could trigger that type 1 diabetes. We haven't done those experiments. Right. So that's uh, a bit of speculation. Um, hmm. This is interesting. What I wondered... Um, when we talk about inflammation, things that can cause the beta cell to kind of, um, you know, come off of its program of, uh, of its typical synthetic program, you know, this new, there's some new work by Philippe Blanco, um, and others. And now Matthias, um, von Harreth is putting out his paper regarding the, um, stimulation of the sympathetic innervation of the islets. And once that's happening in this nod mice model, they're getting a, um, a rescue basically from, from type one. Right. And that's so interesting, right? Because that's an innervation mm -hmm. and you wonder if somehow that, I mean, how is that like a reset button? I talked to your colleague, Kevin Otto about this the other day. I'm like, is it like a re you, know, you 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 push your reset button on your modem or what? I mean, it's just so weird because you can do um, like what is that innervation for? I mean, you can take the when people do the pancreatic transplants, they don't re-innervate the pancreas, but and yet it works. But right. but well, when they're messing with the sympathetic nervous system, they are changing the um, the beta cell the islet. Um, functionality. Correct. Yes. Well, I think you have, I think the thing to remember is that there are, there are layers and layers of regulation in most yeah. physiological systems. So um, certainly a, a, an islet or a beta cell can respond to glucose without uh, the autonomic nervous input. Uh, that's not a requirement for insulin secretion in the basic sense, but the input is important for, uh, I would say, regulation of that and feedback from that system. Um, 
and you know we're getting a little bit outside of my realm of expertise so i, I might know speak sorry a little more obtusely on this topic that's right but i find it you know truly fascinating and sometimes i i have you know reviewed papers and grants um where people touch on this topic and so i kind of am peripherally you know included in the conversation so I think that this is one of the emerging areas where there's a lot of questions is what does this autonomic innovation do? There are a lot of questions, they're beginning to be answers. Um, and I think the really cutting edge of this space is can it be manipulated uh, to treat disease? And not just, by the way, not just in the, the diabetes field, but many other fields that involve um, autoimmunity or systemic inflammation are, are beginning to look at this. Yeah, Kevin Tracy with Setpoint has done, you know, they've got some indications already for other disease states like RA and I think people are marching into the world of Crohn's and things like that. So this goes along also with other types of ner nervous stimulation like deep brain stimulation to treat Parkinson's and so forth. Um, right, so there's a lot of potential here to be tapped into, but I think it's also a little bit mysterious in terms of how it works. Yeah, it is. Um, it's one of those things that people are are fighting to understand in a mechanistic and um, clear manner what's actually going on here. And I think people are finding a lot of different hits all over the place. So you're seeing yeah. um, data suggesting that the innervation affects the islet cell, the endocrine cells within the islet directly. There's data suggesting it affects the blood flow to the islet in terms of um, the the cap capillaries expanding and contracting. Uh, I think there's data suggesting that it affects the immune cells, either either resident immune cells or affects the uh, pancreatic lymph nodes as well. Um, certainly, there are other, other organs that impact blood glucose, like the liver, that are also innervated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the biggest stimulation could affect. Um, you know, so I think uh, without. Uh, saying anything about any one particular paper, which may show something very exciting very clearly. To me, there's, there's a lot that remains to be discovered and, uh, and honed to a point here in terms of what, what, what we actually can say about this. Yeah, I feel I've been saying, or been talking to a bunch of different people and young scientists, and we, they come away and we, you know, saying, wow, this is like such a huge, uh, a, a new frontier. It's like the intersection, you know, the brain is a big frontier. The immune system is a, is a big frontier. This is almost like the intersection of yep. um, these two areas. And it's, it, it, it's so wide open. It's like the, the wild west, you know, it's like, <laughs> you know, people can, you know, a for scientists, it's really an exciting place to, to, to be. I am. Um, right. One of the things about this, this topic is it's actually very difficult to study systematically because you can't really replicate this ex vivo. You have to study it in the body. Mm -hmm. And one big question is, is a mouse uh, pancreas innervation, is it the same as a human? Yeah, and, well, the anatomy is very different. Yeah, so quite likely they, there are differences that are important that we need to understand. And then, what, then the question becomes, what's the right model? You know, if we learn something in mice, it's interesting for science. Is it applicable applicable to humans? Human? Yeah. It may be. It may not be. We don't know. It's almost like we need in the field to, not we, but the field needs to sort of like have this uh, a three D appreciation of, of uh, the modalities, all the different um, work that's being done, <laughs> and connected. Yeah, it's hard though because it's it's different disciplines. I mean, immunology. 
And I've said this a few times, immunology is, you know, has its own language, you know, developmental people are doing their thing, genetics does theirs. And I think that some of these um, initiatives, the HERN initiative and NPOD that try to bring people together are so important and so, so great. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess, okay, a couple uh, more questions. Sure. Um, when you are, let's just to circle back to the paper one more time. Are you when you see the GABA release, does it correlate with similar amounts of serotonin release? Well, so serotonin, I believe, uh, is suggested to co release from insulin granules. Mm -hmm. And um, we did not examine that question specifically. So I think that the answer would be would most likely be no meaning we, we don't see GABA and insulin correlate yeah um so I would expect that GABA and insulin would not uh GABA and serotonin would not correlate either um but to do that experiment we would require two different types of biosensor cells yeah um simultaneously and um, that would be a little bit tricky to do with our current setup. So we're actually trying to develop methods where we could do use multiple uh, uh, fluorescent biosensors in the, in the same experiment. Yeah, it gets more tricky if you have more uh, moving parts, I guess. I, I also wondered, is there a baseline amount of GAD65 needed to create the pulsatile secretion? So, Baseline GAD to create pulsatile secretion is it is an interesting question. I, we don't I don't know the answer to that. Uh, I would just, so the thing that I would think about when you ask me this question is enzymes um, can have a lot of turnover at fairly low concentration, mm -hmm. and so GAD is turning over glutamic acid uh, glutamate to make to make GABA decarboxylates it mm -hmm. and um, releases a CO two molecule. So of course, the more enzyme you have, the faster um, you can churn through available glutamic acid. But if glutamic acid is limiting, then it doesn't matter how much GAD you have. It will just turn it over um, according to the available amount of substrate. So probably it's a mix of, of metabolism, nutrient availability, and so forth that, that really results in how much GABA is being released. Okay. All right, those are my, uh, I had a couple more, but that's, that's great. Um, I guess, um, this is this is just such a fascinating um, mode of inquiry, and uh, what you guys are doing is just is really exciting. I can't wait to see your next uh, your next paper come out. What what's going on in the lab right now to that end? You said you just got a new um, grant, and do you have a couple of postdocs, or how, who's in your laboratory working on this? That's great. Well, we didn't we don't have the grant yet. We had a grant reviewed at the NIH uh, to continue the story and it received a, a score within the funding pay line. So we expect, hope, fingers crossed that it will, fingers crossed. Uh, it will come through for us, but we won't know for a little bit more time for definitively on that. So I haven't hired any additional personnel yet, um, but hopefully we'll ramp up hiring soon. So we actually have a postdoc ad out available now. Uh, I posted it on Twitter if anyone wants to check it out. Great. Um, for a position starting in January 2021, uh, pending that expected grant does come through. I don't want to jinx it. Um, so what are we working on next? Uh, by the way, my, you know, I'm an engineer, so there's two sides to my lab. We do this islet biology um, type of stuff where we're very interested in the role of neurotransmitters. Um, I work with some other colleagues at UF, including 
Sherry Stabler, uh, who's the PI on a multi-PI grant, along with Todd Briscoe and Clayton Matthews on an islet on a chip project, where we're trying to model type, the various aspects of type 1 diabetes in a humanized setting. So we use human beta cells, or human islets, and human um, islet-specific immune cells together with a microfluidic device to emulate uh, the etiopathology of, of T1D. Cool. And we're incorporating some of these biosensor sniffer cell type technologies as well into those systems. So we can sense GABA and other analytes that are being released um, during an, uh, an autoimmune insult and see how the functionality of the, of the islet changes in that setting, which I think is a very cool, exciting project. This is a, this is a Hearn project uh, as well. Yeah, the islet on the chip um, work that's uh, coming out now is really fun. Yep. I think anyways. <laughs> so that gets to a question about like the right model systems um, and in developing ways that we can have more of an impact in the, in the human setting. I mean, so obviously we don't do experiments with live humans. So the, the only way to really get at this is to try to recapitulate those aspects that we can of the human biology on an ex vivo environment on a device. For True. Um, and then we can use mice as alternative models, uh, understanding the caveat that there may be differences uh, that could be critical. Yeah. The other side of my lab is actually engineering. So we work again on hydrogels and um, engineered environments. And in, in that side, we're working on uh, novel types of systems that where, where we could uh, protect islets or deliver uh, immunomodulatory molecules in an islet transplant setting, um, or just to understand more about what targets might be, might be good for addressing uh, islet rejection as a potential T1D therapy. Yeah. So yeah, you're approaching it from all sides. You've got, you know, you've got your islet biology side, so the wet side, then you have your, your technical um, um, islet on a chip. And then you've got the, another engineering approach with the hydrogels, which is, yeah, it's really, you've got a lot going on there. So for anybody who's out there looking for a postdoc, this sounds like an ideal place to apply. UF is a great environment uh, for training because uh, my laboratory and the whole department of biomedical engineering is co-housed in the same building as the UF Diabetes Institute, oh. which is a really unique proximity and setup. So the second and third floors are, are BME spaces and the fifth floor is the UFDI and, and NPOD is also um, located there. So we really are integrated uh, it, vertically in the real physical world uh, uh, as well as horizontally in the, in the, um, you know, the, the virtual world. It sounds like there's a lot of, uh, yeah, it sounds like there's a lot of opportunities for cross-pollination too from the different disciplines. Yeah, yes. Uh, there's a joint uh, T32 training award between UFDI and BME, so there's a, a lot of synergy between the two centers. Nice. And Gainesville's a nice place to live too? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Especially if you're a PhD student or a postdoc, your stipend will go a lot further than if you're in San Francisco or Boston. Fantastic. Uh, Gainesville is uh, great for uh, both single people and for families. Uh, it's got both things to offer. It's uh, situated in a, a lot of nature, which maybe people don't appreciate that, but 
the uh, or at least don't know about that is what I mean to say. But the north central part of Florida is is absolutely dotted with little freshwater springs that are um, these little sparkling jewels out in in the jungle uh, that you can swim in. Most of them are state parks, and uh, they're actually connected to the aquifer. So it's the cave diving capital of North America. Oh, that's so cool. Kind of, you might know more about the cenotes in the Yucatan, or I've heard of those. So it's kind of something like that. Wow, I did not um, know that. And and we are not far from the either coast either, so it's easy to go to the beach for a day and um, get your surfing game on or whatever it is you want to do. That's great. Yeah, no, this um, we'll be sure to post this on our um, on our job site as well. Okay. Is is well, there anything? Yeah, thank you. Please. Is there anything else you'd like to just sort of um, share with our readers, maybe, I mean, with our audience, sorry, um, and maybe sort of a direct uh, message to young scientists in this time of challenge? Absolutely. Um, well, the, the first thing I would say is that it's really important to be kind to yourself right now and be understanding that progress is going to be slower uh, because of all of the difficult ways in which we now have to work. And, um, you know, I think beyond just the, the realities of, of not having as much access to the lab and being able to get your experiments done quickly, um, that you have to accept the realities that the funding situation may be different now in the field, particularly with some of our foundations. Um, but also we don't know what, you know, what the outlook will be there in the near future. I think everyone has to deal with some bit of psychological trauma as well from the isolation, uh, which impacts productivity and impacts, um, you know, how well you can think quickly and critically. And, and it's just very important that uh, institutions, that PIs, that um, that professional societies, uh, funding agencies, all keep this in mind with their expectations for themselves and for the people they interact with. Um, yeah, that's really well said and, and so appreciated, I'm sure, from those who hear it. Because um, I think that a lot of the young scientists are sort of, you know, really, um, you know, really experiencing this. So thanks for sh saying that and sharing it. The other thing I could say is that um, the threat of the COVID-19 pandemic is really, really real. Uh, I actually contracted COVID-19 in March. Oh no. And uh, it knocked me down very hard. I was, I was extremely ill for a long time and um, I, I'm now getting, getting better, but you may have read about some of these long hauler symptoms that go on for months and months. And I definitely have experienced um, quite a few of that, those things as part of my recovery. And uh, so probably most people, whether they know it or not, they have, will have had colleagues or they themselves will have contracted this uh, as we continue to go through it. And that's going to impact productivity as well. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, people that actually get it or people that are caring for family members or are concerned about family members that, True. that risk. And I think the number one thing to do is to, to protect yourself and protect your families and do what you need to do as a, as a caregiver. Um, it's very important to give yourself and the people that you're responsible for the, the time and the space they need to do those things. Yeah, I totally agree. And wear the masks. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Thank you, Ed, um, for talking. You know, we have a lot of people. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, go ahead. No, go ahead. 
Well, I was going to say that, you know, being in C1D, you actually find a lot of uh, people that work in the field who, who are immunocompromised or who are um, maybe diabetic. And you have to keep your uh, coworkers in mind, even if you yourself may not be at risk. Yeah. So if you're in the lab, you may think you're young and healthy uh, and, and you don't mind if you have a flu for a few days. It could be devastating to somebody else. True. Um, so it's really important to protect your colleagues and yourself and, and follow the safety precautions. Right. I mean, and to that note, some of the, you know, um, the thought leaders in the field are, are not as young as they once were. So we have to protect them as well. Sure. Thank you again, Ed, for talking to us. This was really great. Um, just uh, uh, a, a huge fan of this work. And, um, you know, we just uh, hope you uh, continue to get better and feel better and that your lab just continues to do great things. Oh, well, thank you so much for that and for the opportunity to talk about the paper. Um, there will be a perspectives uh, piece coming out in Nature Metabolism, I think, next month that also elaborates on a lot of these questions. So Good. Yeah, I'll be looking for it. We'll, we'll highlight it on, t on the Sugar Science. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks so much.